0: Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura
1: Mullen.
2: And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters
1: with secrets.
3: Play me wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Guess what? February 13th is World Radio Day, and to celebrate, we're taking a look at our favourite medium. Radio is lightweight, inexpensive, and sometimes absolutely essential. But of course, radio over the airwaves exists alongside lots of ways to access audio on demand. So what's the place of ye old radio in an age of podcasting and streaming? This time, a nostalgic look back and a surprising look forward at radio. Remember sitting in math class and wondering, when am I ever going to use this stuff in the real world? Well, the answer might be in your radio, or more specifically, in
1: what makes it work. My name is Paul Mahan. I'm a professor emeritus of electrical engineering at the University of New Hampshire.
2: Paul is also the author of The Mathematical Radio, and as the name suggests, he breaks down the math that undergirds the radio.
1: Basically what happens is at the very Beginning at the transmitter, people talk into a microphone, much like you and I are doing right now.
2: Uh, The spotlight's on the miracles tonight.
1: And our vocal cords produce vibrations in the air, which uh, the microphone turns into vibrations in electricity. That then gets upgraded to very high frequencies, higher than the frequencies in our voice. We're talking at a few thousand cycles per second uh, right now for transmission through the uh, atmosphere. Uh, It has to be at much higher frequencies than that, and the electronics at the radio station does that. So we're not talking about frequencies of hundreds of, thousands of cycles per second of Mm -hmm. vibration. But let me put it this way. It turns what were vibrations out of your throat into electromagnetic vibrations at a much higher frequency. Travel through space, get picked up by an antenna, which then reverses the process. It takes those high frequency vibrations, reduces them down to audio frequency and put them into a loudspeaker and uh, out comes your voice. And it's really uh, almost like a work of uh, magic. The early pioneers in radio once said that it's as close to magic as anything on earth has ever been.
2: In his book, Paul explains that magic in practical terms, and he takes us on a journey through the cultural and technological evolution of radio. He does it with the help of some key equations that make radio possible and that explain the fundamentals of electricity and magnetism. Buckle up, friends. A little bit of math on the radio.
1: To understand what's going on when the signal leaves the antenna, you have to really go through some mathematics that was discovered in the 19th century by James Maxwell, a famous Scottish physicist, actually, and talk about Maxwell's equation. I do that in my book. I don't think you want me to do that here. We're, <laughs> gonna, we're I couldn't do it without a, about a mile of chalk and a blackboard. Right. <laughs>
2: Paul wrote the book as a sort of response to English mathematician Godfrey Harold Hardy's 1940 claim that the only real mathematics is pure mathematics, the abstract stuff we can't really apply in our daily lives.
1: Yeah, I had a lot lot of fun with that because I knew it was going (laughs) to bug mathematicians for me to say that. Hardy is is, uh, sort of a demigod. Uh, you know, he he's he just walks on water for mathematicians. One of the great mathematicians of the first half of the 20th century. He was born in the Victorian age, but he lived until 1947. Mm. And mathematicians revere him. He was a tremendously inventive and bright fellow. Bright's not the right word to work. He was a genius. Mm-hmm. But he did have this one flaw in which he felt that anything that was applied, and especially anything that engineers did, was somehow innately bad and evil and would be applied to you know the, to the destruction of humankind. And I think he was way off base with that. So I thought, well, I'm going to write a book centered on that. That'll get mathematicians' attention. right? And, it will, and it, it will allow me to vet my feelings. And I wrote the book like I was talking to Hardy. He's been dead now for 70 years. Mm. But if I was actually sitting in a room talking to him, I would want to say, look, Hardy, here's why you're wrong. And let me show you a wonderful, beautiful application of mathematics. It's something that everybody would agree is amazing. Yeah. Namely radios. Radios. Yeah.
2: Can we talk a bit about the history? In their early years, what were AM and FM radios mainly used for?
1: AM radio actually wasn't quite the first. People were sending radio telegraph signals, Morse code, you know, for years before that. Right. But, of course, it wasn't what we would call radio, but it was, it was using the basic ideas of radio, namely transmitting electromagnetic signals through space. Radio itself, broadcast radio, commercial radio, dates from the early 1920s. And, well, gee, it revolutionized society, I think.
0: This has been the Libby Morris Show, and this is the Dominion Network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation.
1: You can just imagine what it was like before radio the sun would go down and people were in their homes what was there to do Mm. well you'd sit in front of a fireplace and read the paper you maybe have a conversation with some friends or you know you talk to your dog or your cat and then you go to bed and that was about it and suddenly with radio people could listen to sports programs let's show
4: the folks your gold medals
1: the comedy They could listen to newscasts. They
0: They're out of the mind. That is all. This is the Canadian radio. They could
1: listen to breaking news, like the Hindenburg blowing up, and, you know, fracturing in New all the New Jersey. People could feel like they were participating in a, an events. Millions of other people were doing exactly the same thing at the same time. namely, all listening to each other's radios. Or, or, to the neighbor's radio, mm-hmm. if you didn't have a radio, you' just stand out in your front yard and you could listen to your neighbor's radio, <laughs> you know, and people did that sort of thing, yeah, yeah, and so that was the beginning of radio, and then, of course, people discovered ads, you could sell stuff you know by advertising over the radio, and uh, that people can make their own judgment about whether that's good or bad, <laughs> but that's where it really kind of started. <laughs>
2: Early in the book, you say that radio is perhaps uh, has had the greatest societal impact and that, that only the automobile can compete with radio in terms of its societal impacts. Now, I obviously think radio is important, but can you expand on like, why you think it's been so important culturally that you would, uh, you, know, you would say
1: that it's such an important innovation? Well, you know, with radio, is it brought the world together in, in the early days of radio. You could turn on your radio and listen to people broadcasting from London during the Blitz. Oh, here it comes now. You couldn't do that before radio. Before radio, you'd, you'd read the story of uh, world events weeks after they had occurred. But now you were almost a direct participant. And I, in that sense, it brought the world together. It made it a smaller place than it had been. And I think that was a revolutionary development.
2: Yeah. What's been your relationship with the radio over the course of your lifetime?
1: Well, you know, I I was lucky in a way. I I was born in 1940. So I actually caught the tail end of what we now call old-time radio. I I was able to listen to the radio programs of the late 1940s. I was about nine or ten years old. And then into the early 1950s, and I can remember coming home from high school, go into my bedroom, throw my books on the table, and flop down in bed and, and turn on the radio. And I could listen to the old, some of the old-time radio shows, X-Minus One, Mystery Theater, Suspense Theater, that kind of stuff. CBC
0: presents a new series of chills and thrills of mystery and adventure, old and new. Tales of the supernatural and the unforeseen of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And uh, so I kind of grew up with that.
2: Yeah. So like full-on radio dramas, right? Not just sort of here's the news and here's a song, but full-on programming.
1: When I was on sabbatical about 25 years ago at the University of Virginia, I taught a course in the early days of radio history. And I showed up in class the first day. I thought maybe I'd be lucky if I had five or six kids come in. I had 50 students show up, Wow! and one of the reasons is they all wanted to know where radio had come from, (laughs) and so I I started off by asking, why are you guys so interested in this? And it turned out that what everybody in the classroom liked to do was sing along with songs on the radio (laughs) when you're in your car by yourself. Right. (laughs) And I I asked them, I said, does everybody do that? And everybody, every hand went up. And it made me feel pretty good because I do the same thing. (laughs) The kids I was talking to, they had all been born about 1980. And to them, radio was old hat. It had been around a long time. Mm -hmm. But they still did the same thing that I did 50 years before them. Radio is such a magical thing. It's one of those things you just don't ever get used to, I think. Yeah. Most of us depend upon radio more than we know. It keeps us informed every minute of every day. That's radio for you, close to every member of the family.
4: This is Spark on CBC Radio.
2: I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the magic of radio with a little bit of math. Right now, my guest is Paul Nahan, an electrical engineer and author of The Mathematical Radio, which looks at the many breakthroughs in math and engineering that led to the invention of the traditional radio as we know it today.
1: It didn't just all suddenly one day somebody turned a radio on in 1920 and, gee, there's a radio. You can go all the way back to Ben Franklin, let's say, with his historical experiments of electricity, flying kites in the sky. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that is apocryphal and how much is true. But the development of the electric battery, when people began to experiment with magnets and were wondering if there was any connection between magnetism and electricity, this was all with Faraday, Mm -hmm. uh, who did these experiments in the early 1800s. The development by Maxwell and his colleagues, of the mathematics of electricity and magnetism, how they were one and the same thing. Electrical effects and magnetic effects are really a manifestation of the same physics. In fact, James Clerk Maxwell, that's a name everybody should remember, I think, called it a mutual embrace, Hmm. magnetism and electricity. People, when they had the mathematical description of how electricity and magnetism work, would begin to perform experiments on paper you know, gee, if I take this equation and combine it with this equation and maybe play a few more mathematical games, what comes out of that? And eventually people arrived at the conclusion that energy could be sent through what appeared to be empty space. Yeah, Radio waves. These were all discovered on paper before they were discovered experimentally. People looked for them because they, the theory said they should be there and discovered them. Then, of course, the question came up, well, now the... We have them. What do we do with them? Mm -hmm. And that's when business people started to come into effect. People like Marconi. Marconi was in the business of sending radio telegraph Morse code signals for commercial use. Business people who wanted to communicate with ships at sea, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. This all developed in the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th, early part of the 20th. And then, of course, there was the discovery of, in somebody's mind that, gosh, how about we actually do something like entertainment? <laughs> and uh, this all began, and I think, historically. The first radio drama was in England mm-hmm. uh, in 1920 or so. Interestingly enough, the first radio drama was a dramatic show based upon miners trapped in a dark, lightless coal mine. Perfect for audio. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. audio. You had to use your imagination. And interestingly enough, the guy who wrote the script for that show came over to the United States about uh, six months later, and he tried to sell the idea to American uh, radio people, and they said, no, it'll never fly. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody will listen to anything where they have to imagine it, <laughs> and how wrong they were. Yeah.
2: You know, it seems inevitable, Paul, that with every new technology, there's some apprehension, there's a fear that will lead to the downfall of society, you know, smartphones being a a recent example. But I understand there were also some moral panics around the introduction of the radio.
1: Well, yeah, there are always naysayers, you know, people who look on the gloomy side of things, uh, or people, you know, who are honestly trying to understand all the ramifications of everything. But I think every new technology has that. We're going through that today right now with artificial intelligence. People are very concerned about the implications. And you're right. There was the same concern about radio. And I think one of the concerns, in fact, was that people would be finding out what was really going on in the world, whereas before it got filtered, you know, through newspapers and word of mouth and that sort of thing. And how would people react to actually being exposed to real-time events Hmm. on the spot?
2: Yeah. So considering the once groundbreaking technological advances that bolstered AM radio and and the cultural impact of that, what do you make of the decline of AM radio in recent years?
1: Well, of course, I have to admit, I don't listen to AM radio much anymore myself, (laughs) I listen to satellite radio and FM, because I can find what I want to listen to there, including the old-time radio shows the top music hits from the 1950s, I'm a big Buddy Holly fan myself. Mm-hmm. I, I listen to his stuff. I can't find that on AM radio. Yeah, Physically and mathematically, AM radio is wonderful. The way it's implemented physically on, across the land now is boring. I, I just mm-hmm. don't listen to it. Right. I advocate everybody to read my book, learn about how it works, and then tune to FM. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what
2: Okay. And just finally, Paul, you know, we have podcasts now, we've got internet radio, we've got satellite radio. What would you say is the future of radio? Where do you see the technology heading?
1: Well, you know, actually, that gives me an opportunity to qualify my remarks just a little bit. I see the future of AM radio being in space. I can remember back in the 1960s when the first AM radio signal came from the moon, when Armstrong and his colleagues landed on the moon. Mm -hmm. And I predict that there are people alive today who are going to send the first AM radio broadcast signal from Mars back to Earth, and we're going to hear it. I think that'll be the big breakthrough for AM radio or FM. Maybe it'll be FM instead of AM. (laughs) That's that's a mere quibble. Uh, That's where I see the future of radio. Radio is going to be the only way to communicate when we venture out into space. It's the only thing that's fast enough to send signals, speed of light. You know, here on Earth, you can talk to people, you can yell, you can make a recording and send it through the mail. But if you really want to talk to anybody quickly in real time, radio is the only thing that works. Yeah, And that's going to become even more pronounced when we start doing space travel. And things aren't just thousands of miles apart they're hundreds of millions of miles apart.
2: Paul, thanks so much for your thoughts on this. You're welcome. Paul Nahan is the author of The Mathematical Radio, Inside the Magic of AM, FM, and Single Sideband. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, in honour of World Radio Day on February 13th, we're talking about the past and future of radio. Radio. Now, you may be thinking, whoa, back up the turnip truck, Nora. People get audio wherever and whenever they want, not just from the radio. And it's true. The ability to access audio anytime you want has been a game changer. Heck, Spark's been a podcast almost since its inception back in 2007. And there's all manner of streaming services, satellite and apps for accessing audio. Like a lot of people, I don't even have a physical radio anymore cbc.ca slash spark. Watch an interactive movie, savor an omelette, clean the crud off your keyboard, all in 27 minutes. Spark starts with this. Although we usually talk about new technologies on Spark, you can actually learn a lot by looking at older technologies and the impacts they had on the culture. Plus, old radios, those physical devices, are just really cool. So let's go on a little field trip, shall we, to the Society for the Preservation of Antique Radio in Canada.
4: Hello, I'm Bruce Winter. I'm the treasurer for the Spark Radio Museum in Coquitlam, British Columbia.
2: And I gotta say, I love that it's called Spark, albeit with a C and not a K.
4: Spark started in uh, the early 90s, about 1993, 94 and there were four founding members that had large radio collections at home and wished to display them to the general public. Bruce Winter
2: is joined by Jerry O'Hara, the director of the Spark Museum. Jerry joined us from a room in his house in Victoria against a backdrop of old gadgets. It's where he's mastered the art of repairing, restoring, and refurbishing antique radios.
5: I've always been fascinated with radio technology since I was about 13 or 14 years old and got really into building my own equipment and operating it um, back in my teens and early 20s. When I moved to Coquitlam in 2000 and I just happened to go to the Spark Museum one day, I thought, oh, this looks interesting. So I decided to go to the Spark Museum quite regularly after that. And then I just I built a collection up of my own.
2: The Spark Museum houses about 4,000 artifacts from radio history, as well as auxiliary items like old TVs and telegraphs. But space at the museum is limited, so many of the artifacts are currently in storage.
4: We cover not just commercial broadcast radios, we cover marine radio, military radio, television, and really from 1900 up until the 50s and 60s when transistor radios became very popular. And there continues to be obviously a, a large public interest to preserve this history of uh radio because they continue the public continues to bring us donations that obviously they wish to preserve to have it, you know, working again, which we can do.
2: Bruce, is there an item or two that stand out from the collection for you?
4: Uh we have a very beautiful Spartan uh Bluebird Radio which was from 1934 1935 and there is Jerry actually has an example of it. Yeah. Beautiful. Back, yes. It's an Art Deco radio with a glass surround, and um, very few survived because obviously with the glass it would be cracked and damaged and such. So that's a very valuable radio. We have, that wasn't a Canadian radio, but we have a lot of Addison radios which were Canadian manufactured, and it's actually called the Courthouse Radio, and it's quite a popular and very unique radio, which I like. It's very beautiful. What about you,
2: Jerry? Are there one or two that stand out for you?
5: Well, I like the same ones from a domestic point of view, but I, I also like the military radios, and I, uh, I restore quite a few. that so were either Canadian military or U.S. military and so on. The museum's got a, a section called the foxhole, which has got a a sort of collection of military radios from different eras and different forces, sort of Navy and so on. And one of my favorite receivers in there is a a RACAL, which is a UK manufactured receiver that was used extensively in the uh, Canadian Navy up until the 1990s. And uh, it was manufactured in the late 50s and 60s. And it's still a fantastic radio. I used to have one. I, I, I sold it on. I've been winding my collection down over the years. But I've restored a number of them, one for the museum and several for friends. And that's, that's certainly one of my favorite radios. It's, it's a military radio from the Canadian Navy.
2: I want to ask a little bit more about that. I understand that one of the services offered at Spark is restoring and refurbishing old radios. And I know you're among the volunteers who've done this sort of work, Jerry. I guess it all depends on the radio and what its issues are. But can you tell me about the approach to doing this work?
5: Yeah, I've I've thought about long and hard about restoration of radios because... There's some radios I believe shouldn't be restored, they should be left as is, and I donated a, a radio like that, um, a little crossly, to the museum years ago, which I was I was given, and I looked at it, and I, it's a very rare radio from 1926, and it had kind of unique tube in it, and I thought about restoring it, and I couldn't bring myself to do any work on it, and in the end, I felt it was better not to... Touched, just left as is for people to appreciate in the future that's how it is it's yeah it looks a bit scruffy but that's exactly how it was in 1926 plus a little bit of wear and tear but other radios as Bruce says people bring them in their family heirlooms or they're something they've bought at a flea market that they'd like to get working and they'd like to look nice and what to do with the cabinet whether it, it is completely restored you know all the old finish stripped down and new finish applied to it Uh, Again, that depends on the condition of the cabinet. If it's badly scratched or the veneer is peeling off, maybe it does warrant complete refinishing. But quite often you can restore a a cabinet into reasonably good condition and it shows a few dings here and there and it's kind of the patina of of the radio. So I tend to try and do that if I can these days with the radio. You can restore the chassis to working condition usually quite easily. Modern components fit inside old radios quite easily. And tubes are readily available. It's not as though tubes are rare. Very, very few tubes are to the point you can't get them anymore or you can't substitute them anymore. So, yes, you can quite easily restore a chassis of a radio to working condition. Uh, it's possible to have them still looking the same as they used to. You can restuff the old components with new components, so when you look at the chassis, it looks exactly the same as it used to look. We get it works because it's got new components inside the old components.
2: Oh, interesting. Bruce, you were you were nodding along there. Do you have some of the same thoughts about this, uh, the sort of keeping the, the patina of the, the older, the, the life that this radio has been through?
4: Uh Yes. Like uh, Jerry mentioned, there's the two avenues of restoration. You can restore it to factory original condition, or you can have it working but leave most of its journey through through life, as it were, intact. And I think a lot of people appreciate both aspects. Uh, there are certainly aficionados that like it to uh, retain its original appearance, but there's certainly an argument to leave some aspects of its journey through life. <laughs> intact.
2: Yeah, yeah. Jerry, how long does the process of fixing a piece take you on average?
5: Again, it depends on the, the level of effort uh, needed. To restore a, a small domestic radio, like a tabletop type radio, assuming that the cabinet's in reasonable condition, it's not completely wrecked. I would say probably take me a week.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Um,
5: uh, not not at full time, but just I can I can probably restore the chassis in a day or two and the cabinet in another day or two, something like that, and then just checking it out and uh, uh, realigning it so it works efficiently. For a large communications receiver like the Raquel that I mentioned earlier, uh, that might take me a month.
4: Okay, wow. Well, one aspect
5: of the museum is that we like to consider it a working
4: museum, and if members have uh, sufficient technical knowledge, They can bring their own project in and work on it at the museum and make use of our parts and uh, share knowledge amongst themselves, as uh, we have a lot of knowledge over the years that we've gained in restoring radios, and we share that knowledge and help them restore their radios themselves. So what would you say
2: is behind the staying power of radio and just audio storytelling more broadly? Bruce, you first.
4: Well, uh, radio has evolved over the years, and uh, it's really a fairly low-cost means of providing information and entertainment. I mean, in North America, of course, we've gone to not so much uh, over-air broadcast uh, radio, and most people are streaming things these days. You know, it's adapted to new technologies and such, but it's still
5: relevant.
2: Mm -hmm. Jerry, how about you?
5: I feel the same way. I I quite... I into conversations with people sometimes about radio, about what what place has it got in the modern day, right? People, as Bruce says, they stream everything. I stream everything these days. When I'm working on a radio, I'll have it playing in the background, and it's, I listen to broadcast radio. But generally speaking, I listen to things over the Internet. And the conversations I have with people, particularly younger people, and, and they say, well, what, what's the point of radio? You've got everything on, on your phone these days. Well, what do you think the phone is? It's a radio, right? It's just, <laughs> it's just using the technology in a different way. Yeah. And you kind of explain how it's using the technology. It's the basics of how it's receiving a signal, how it's sending out your voice, how it's receiving the internet or whatever. And it's, sometimes it's, it's people just, whoa, is that right? I didn't realize that. I mean, and it's it's great to be able to kind of give somebody a bit of an insight into the history of how that came about that you know we go back 20 30 years and that wasn't there it just the internet was just a fledgling thing and only special bias people kind of got into it it wasn't a general thing that everybody had and um, i find that's quite an interesting conversation to have with people
2: yeah i want to thank you both for talking to us today
5: oh very good thanks for your questions thank you Nora.
2: Bruce Winter and Jerry O'Hara are the treasurer and director of the Spark Museum in Coquitlam, B.C.
0: And every day your radio is ready to serve. Wherever you travel, radio is doing its job. In many communities, radio points the way.
2: I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive. Like, what
5: does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor?
1: I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes.
2: Find the dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, our favorite audio medium, the radio. First, we thought moving images spelled the end of radio, but video didn't kill the radio star. And although satellite radio, streaming and podcasts offer different ways to get your audio, over the decades, radio has proven its enduring power. In the case of emergency situations or natural disasters, it can be a lifeline. Consider the Northeast blackout of 2003. It was
4: all very orderly, lots of smiles on faces, lots of people listening to radios. It's a big day for radio in Toronto, as uh, most television networks not being seen, obviously, with no power. But battery-powered radios are uh, keeping people informed.
2: So that was back in 2003. I wonder how common battery-powered radios were 20 years ago. I had one. Spark Senior Producer, Michelle, always be prepared, Parisi. Of course you had a battery-powered radio, just in case. Yes, I
3: did. I had this little transistor radio that I bought at a radio shack in Mm -hmm. 1995, and it became really important in 2003 on that hot
2: afternoon. I feel a story coming on. Tell me
3: more. (laughs) Well. I lived in a building in downtown Toronto with my partner at the time. There weren't even generators in the building. So he felt his way down the stairs to the parking level where all our camping equipment was stored. He dug out our flashlights and my trusty little radio. At that moment, I was in the car, unfortunately, slowly making my way back downtown. The streetlights were out. It seemed like thousands of extra people were on the sidewalks. No one knew what was happening. I wasn't listening to CBC radio in the car. I know, okay, I know. But the station I was listening to went completely silent, mid-smoke on the water. I was flipping through the stations, and they were all dead. Eventually, local CBC radio sprang to life, the only station with powerful enough generators. Everybody here is working and broadcasting, one of my colleagues said. Yes, things are bad, said another one, but just be relaxed. Don't call Toronto Hydro because they don't know anything. I'd worked an early shift that day and could picture everyone in the newsroom. I half-wished I was there to be part of the action. But the thought vanished when I finally arrived outside my condo. There was my partner, standing on the driveway that led to our building's parking garage. He was holding something in his hand, and about 30 people were standing around him. I didn't know any of them, but they were all smiling and sharing food and beer and listening... To my little battery powered radio.
2: Off a domino effect throughout the northeast.
3: By then, my colleagues in the newsroom had some idea of what was happening, and so did anyone who lived in our building or happened to be walking by. All because the one and only way to get any information was the radio. It was also the way we finally met all of our neighbors and were able to help total strangers. It was so cool the way the radio brought us all together. Okay, obviously I'm sentimental about that day. But this isn't just a nostalgic tale. A simple radio would still be a lifeline if something like this happened today, And that's why I think I'm going to go out and buy
2: a new one this weekend. Michelle Parisi is Spark's senior producer. So next time there's a power outage, parties at Michelle's. This time on Spark to celebrate World Radio Day on February 13th, we're looking at the power of radio and audio. Listening to her, I'm reminded of how lightweight and responsive radio is, and the way audio, the way listening, can carry so much information and emotion. But on a day-to-day basis, these days there's a lot of competition for your media attention, and for advertising dollars, as listening audiences decline. For instance, cars are still the number one place where people listen to the radio. But the dashboards in newer vehicles have become a sort of media battleground in recent years.
0: Pretty much everything rolling off the assembly line at the moment is loaded with all kinds of cool infotainment features, including a touch screen in most cases. But I think more importantly, when you think about it from a radio standpoint, just myriad options now available to drivers and passengers. You know, the days of the two knobs and the six presets and the CD player are long gone, and uh, drivers, passengers. Passengers, the folks in the backseat have a lot of choice now. This is Fred Jacobs. So I'm president of Jacobs Media. We're out of Detroit, Michigan, and we provide research and consulting services uh, really to the entire radio industry.
2: Fred's been thinking long and hard about the complicated and evolving business side of radio. There are changes coming in listener behavior, and new in-dash features in cars, like the ability for passengers to play Grand Theft Auto or even take a Zoom call, will likely have a long-term impact on the AM-FM radio's future.
0: Well, radio was and still is, by the way, king of the car. So there's no question that even with all the proliferation of infotainment systems that there are, there is more listening to AM FM radio in the car than any other audio source. But it is changing and clearly the AMFM share of use is eroding. It's like a slow leak, not a real radical shift, but if you look at it over the course of the last 8 to 10 years, you can definitely see slippage. And what people are doing is using all kinds of other things in terms of content from their phones, uh, satellite radio, talking books... All those kinds of things, uh, consumers are realizing they can have the same experience in their car as they have in their home or even you know, on the go while they're driving around. So that has really begun to reshape the equation.
2: Mm-hmm. So as a, let's follow up on that a little bit. As a media consultant, you've been observing the behavior of listeners in North America. So tell me a bit more about that. How are we seeing that change?
0: Well, uh, a choice is is a good thing until it's not and (laughs) so the consumer has all kinds of different options and you know, the other part of that is the pandemic because radio depends heavily on habit and routine, right? You Mm -hmm. get up in the morning at the same time, you put on a pot of coffee and you turn on your favorite morning show on the radio. Well, when you're only going into the office two days a week- or you're Hmm. working from home permanently, or you're on a hybrid schedule that always changes, you are out of that rhythm. And when you're out of that rhythm, you're out of the habit of doing particular things. And radio falls very much into that kind of scope. The other thing is you're not in traffic and... Traffic in radio is our friend, (laughs) you know, to to most people, those orange barrels are like, oh, no. And radio people see those and go, this is great. We've got people trapped in their vehicles for an extra half hour. But if you're not commuting to work as you regularly might have back in 2019, it changes listening patterns in a pretty significant way.
4: Mm hmm.
2: What about the demographics of this? I mean, from what I understand, younger listeners are, are not listening to the radio nearly as much. Is that borne out by the stats?
0: Well, that was happening to begin with, right? Younger people are clearly more active adopters of new technology, streaming audio on demand. Young people really can't stand commercials. <laughs> I mean go figure I mean how could that be but yes right. I'm I'm kidding but yeah they are more commercial averse than other generations are so they tend to gravitate more to on demand sources as opposed to radio which is linear right it's in real time it's in the moment and there is a charm about that I mean not knowing what song is coming up next can be a really cool thing having somebody curate the music for you instead of your own playlist can be a wonderful experience. But commercials are part of the cost of over-the-air radio. And for uh, some generations and demographics, it may be too big a price to pay.
2: Yeah. And of course, you can listen to many of your favorite radio programs, like CBC radio programs, as a podcast. You can listen to them whenever you want. So you're not tied to that linear experience if you don't want
0: it. Exactly right. The ratings still are very much an over-the-air, real-time kind of thing. Radio doesn't get as much credit for its on-demand listening. So even though more and more people are listening on demand monetizing those listeners is something that most radio organizations have found really challenging so that's part of the other kind of gambit to all of this is that broadcast radio operators know they need to move more into an on-demand kind of paradigm. But the problem is when you can't make as much money from on-demand as you can from real time, it really creates a difficult situation and it's hard to strategize your way out of that.
2: Yeah. So amidst all this change, the, the effect of the pandemic, the demographic shift, the competition for the dashboard, how do you see the role of local commercial and public radio kind of going into the future?
0: Well, you said the magic word, I think, which is local. Because when you look at what local radio has in its quiver, it really is one of the few media left that actually has the ability to focus on a local market, a community, whereas most of the other sources, whether it's satellite radio or Spotify or podcasts, which really has no tether to anything. So local radio has a tremendous advantage if broadcasters actually actually double down on that and provide local programming that actually is really good. And I think the pandemic actually helped to shape that to a huh. great degree. And it's it's kind of a contradiction, right? Because the pandemic was global, right? It, it, everybody in the world was affected by it, but it was really felt locally by most people in terms of where can I get the vaccine and where can I get toilet paper? Do I have to wear a mask in order to go there? What is my school board up to? All those things are very much local concerns, even though the pandemic was obviously far reaching. And I think for a lot of people, the importance of who are their Uh, governors and representatives on the local level actually became something that they maybe started paying more attention to. So there's a lot of headroom for local if radio actually steps into the opportunity and, and really does a good job of putting it out there.
2: I know that Ford recently reversed its decision to omit AM radio from future cars, but electric car companies have said they're no longer going to feature AM radio in their vehicles. So what's happened with the listenership to, to AM radio?
0: In the States, at least, AM radio has been slipping for a number of years, but still, depending on the market, has very essential radio stations, news, talk programming, to a great degree, sports broadcasting, play-by-play, that type of thing. But the car manufacturers are looking at the cost of insulation. It really is a technical issue because these are electric cars, there is an interference problem with amplitude modulation. And so the amount of money that it actually takes to properly make sure everything sounds okay might be more than many automakers wish to spend. And so it's become really a legislative issue at this point. And in the States, there is a bill in front of Congress and believe it or not, there actually is agreement across the aisle this may be the <laughs> only thing those folks can agree on besides right. besides when to go on vacation but they actually are on the same page when it comes to saving am radio and FEMA has gotten involved right federal emergency management because they depend on am radio when there is a crisis whether it's a hurricane or wildfires or that type of thing you know the cell towers go down pretty quickly. So even though municipalities may be posting all kinds of great stuff on their Instagram page or their websites, if you don't have internet, you can't read it. But those AM towers are really built like trucks and they can withstand a lot more inclement weather and other things. And so FEMA looks at AM radio as a real communications tool to make sure that people can remain safe and informed during an emergency situation Mm -hmm. but a mandate for am radio in cars i mean it's a big deal so it'll be very interesting to see whether in fact that passes but something like 200 congress people have signed on to this thing already it is amazing the support that has come from both sides
2: yeah and i think the am signal can travel further than the fm signal right so there's a there's an advantage there
0: there is there right fm is line of sight but am bounces off of things like water and clouds and that type of thing. And that's why many of us who have been in radio for a long time remember listening to AM radio on a transistor in bed and hearing radio from different provinces and different states from all over North America. Kind of an exciting thing when you're a kid. (laughs)
4: This is Spark. Spark. This is Spark.
2: I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the magic of radio and its future in an age of podcasting and streaming. Right now I'm speaking with Fred Jacobs, the founder and president of Jacobs Media and a media strategist focusing on radio broadcasting. Another major shakeup in the radio landscape happened last year. A company called Futuri launched something called Audio AI, which some radio stations in the U.S. and Canada started testing. And similar technologies are being adopted in other parts of the world.
0: Well, unfortunately, the very first vestige of AI in the radio industry was in fact this issue of will robots replace live people behind the microphone. And there was a prominent example in uh, Portland, Oregon, a company called Alpha Media turned over their midday show actually to their own personality.
4: Today, I go from just Ashley to AI Ashley on Live 95.5. So, let's see how close the AI sounds to me. Today, I go from just Ashley to AI Ashley on Live 95.5. Let's see how close the AI sounds to me. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like me. I guess I have the day off.
0: So, the program director can essentially type what she in quotes, is going to say. And ultimately, the program director won't even have to type her breaks. Ostensibly, the uh, AI platform will be able to create them all by itself. So, that has really, I think, put a bit of a panic through the radio Industry. And it's too bad because radio personalities actually need to learn AI to really help their own shows. It can be a great source of preparation. It can do a really great job of kind of eliminating the 20% of our jobs that we hate, right? Because they're mundane and very much kind of pedestrian activities. And uh, AI can really handle a lot of that kind of stuff so that the creative part of what we do on the air can really come through.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I've seen some potential applications where, you know, the promise at least is that you can use AI to replicate the the local aspect of a broadcast, right? Like, so you pull in sort of what's a trending topic in Toronto or Detroit and uh, create your script based on that. Do you think that that kind of technology could pose a threat to local radio?
0: Well, I think if local radio sounds great, there's no threat at all. But yes, the bot can be taught to every break mention something that is going on in Toronto, this weekend that is a fun family activity so yeah the bot can do that in a very mechanized kind of way but that's still different than a personality who's actually going to be at that particular event and wants to meet listeners and and do that kind of eye contact that only an air personality can do so ultimately a great personality i think is always going to be better than a robot but there's no question that the robots can be taught to do a fairly efficient but uh, you know not particularly exciting show
2: <laughs> of course as an on-air personality myself <laughs> i'm very grateful to hear you say that uh, you know there is an example for instance of the musician and producer Will I am he debuted a show on satellite radio which he's co-hosting with an ai called cutie pie
1: I want to introduce you to the co host of the FYI show, Meet Cutie Pie, the world's first AI
2: radio co host.
0: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Cutie Pie coming at you from the airwaves, ready to chat about whatever you want to know. Thanks for having me on the show, Will. I'm super excited to be here. Cutie Pie, I just want to make
2: the. Is that kind of thing at this stage a gimmick, or are there expected benefits of using AI technology this way? Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Cutie Pie is a gimmick and and a big part of his show is demonstrating technology and how it works. So, I, I think he's in a really interesting kind of place here and he's doing a really good job of taking advantage of what's right in front of him. I mean, I, I don't think he would ever allow himself to be replaced by a bot, but the idea of having a sidekick who is, is a great talking point. And at this point, I think a really interesting novelty. All that said, she, in quotes, Sounds pretty good. You know, she's she's kind of interesting and she throws out all kinds of weird thoughts and he's already beginning to ask Pie questions and in typical AI fashion, she can bullet point whatever it is he's asking. So, it is a novelty, but I think it is a good demonstration of how the technology works, which is perfect for his show.
2: Mm-hmm. Are there other trends maybe in machine learning but just in automation more generally that you've seen in in radio broadcasting?
0: Um I'd say really at this point what's happening in the dashboard And the AI piece are probably the two biggest things. What's interesting about the dashboard for broadcast radio is metadata. And what metadata is, is the messaging that you see on the dashboard that shows you the name of the artist, the name of the uh, song, and then maybe even a thumbnail picture Uh, of the album. And so that is becoming a much bigger deal for radio stations. I mean, one, they have to compete with the way that other technology looks on the dashboard. So when you listen to Spotify or you Mm -hmm. listen to uh, satellite radio, you're seeing that metadata now. So broadcast radio needs to make sure that it's at least providing a look that is comparable, but uh, radio actually has an opportunity, I think, to go a little bit further. You know, for example, you're talking to me now on the air, if somebody listening to your show looks at the dashboard, you actually can put up a message that says we're talking AI. Or if I was actually a name that anybody in Canada knew, which I'm not, but if I were, (laughs) I mean, you never know. Uh, But right, if I were, you could actually in metadata say that, you know, you're talking to a particular guest. Because you know how frustrating it is to turn on a radio show in progress and it's like well there's nora young but who the heck is she talking to yeah and you're sitting there (laughs) waiting for one of those little resets that you're supposed to do every five minutes and it doesn't always happen of course because you're human but if it's actually on the screen that can really be a helpful thing for listeners so you start thinking about what else could you put on the screen that isn't too distracting to the driver So that could be sports scores, or it could be what's coming up next, or it could be uh, weather emergency information, all kinds of stuff. So I think we're just as an industry kind of getting used to this idea of having metadata at our fingertips, how we use it strategically to benefit the listener, I think is really a good question at this point.
2: Yeah. I mean, there've been other media revolutions that were expected to make radio obsolete, TV being... The most obvious example. So, why do you think it's been able to maintain an audience after all these years?
0: Well, uh, yes. I mean, you're right. It, radio survived television, it survived MTV, certainly uh, in the States. I, I think when radio is at its best, it's holding up a mirror to a local market and reflecting that vibe that idea of sense of place. You know, you talked about local a few moments ago. I mean, when radio really does its job, It really can be the voice of the local community. And yet a lot of radio stations have moved into the syndicated route uh, or pre-recording shows out of convenience or uh, trying to save a little money. And I think ultimately, if radio is going to get through the internet hurdle, which maybe is a little bit more difficult than television was, it's going to have to really think about the importance of real-time, local, being vital, and of course, personalities. I mean, Nora, you have nothing to worry about. You're a vivacious personality <laughs> and you're really smart. You're fine. It's it's a lot of the other folks out there that really need to step up their game. So we're talking about that a lot now with our broadcasting clients, is letting personalities be personalities to do what they can do. And hopefully we'll have some success there.
2: Yeah. Fred, thanks so much for your insights on this.
0: Appreciate it, Nora. It's a great topic. Thank you for having me on.
2: Fred Jacobs is a media strategist and the president of Jacobs Media. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Paul Nahan, Jerry O'Hara, Bruce Winter, and Fred Jacobs. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.